Mr. Incredible is actually late to his own wedding. Now, I'm late to a lot of things, but I was on time to my wedding. So this is, this is inc- well, it's incredible. Yeah, he's late to his own wedding. And he, but you may recall, it's because he was caught up in the ultimately unsuccessful pursuit of criminal mastermind Bomb Voyage, who was in the midst of robbing a bank safe. While the minister recites the vows... Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible and carry on this whispered conversation about his inexcusable tardiness ending with this warning from Elastigirl. If we're going to make this marriage work, you've got to be more than Mr. Incredible. I love this so much because it really is like almost all the Pixar movies It's a movie that's really for adults dressed up in children's garb. And I'm not just talking about the occasional aside or the occasional one-liner that children wouldn't normally catch. Like, for example, in Bug's Life, in the bar scene, right, the mosquito flies up to the bar, flaps the bar, and he says, bartender, he says, give me a Bloody Mary, oh, positive. No five-year-old's going to get that. You know, that, that's a line for adults. But I'm not talking just about those one-liners and those asides, but the themes that are addressed in this movie are very deep themes and very subtle themes. You see, the incognito name that Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl have chosen is Par. Par, Mr. and Mrs. Par. For those of you who haven't studied Latin, Par is the Latin word for average. So Bob and Susan Parr are really Bob and Susan average. And the humor of the movie is found in watching these superheroes with all their incredible strength and all their incredible flexibility and all their unique powers that no one else has. They struggle to be normal. Mr. Incredible takes a corporate job working in insurance. Elastigirl takes on the role of a stay-at-home mom raising three kids and one husband. And for all their superpowers, for all their astounding abilities, they can't make their incognito undercover life work for them. And I think then at its root, this little kids movie we call it, The Incredibles, is a not-so-subtle commentary on the outrageous expectations and demands that accompany the average American suburban life. The requirements of balancing work and family and houses and yards and kids and soccer practice and all these things are so difficult that even superheroes couldn't do it. We learned very quickly one simple fact as we watch this movie that I take as the title of my message, and that is this. Next slide. Incredibles can't be average. Incredibles can't be average. They try. They work at it. But they fail. Because Incredibles weren't made to be average. Thinking about this a while back, 
following story from the epilogue of John's gospel comes to my mind, came to my mind. It's in John 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter. Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out immediately and got into the boat. And that night, they fished all night. And they caught nothing. Ever since I took a class in the Gospel of John, I think it was my sophomore year with brother littles i've been i've always been fascinating with fascinated with the gospel and i've always been so moved by peter's words in this text i'm going fishing we know that jesus had previously appeared to his disciples twice before this this occurrence the first time he had appeared thomas wasn't with them and he declared unless i see his hands in his hands the print of the nails And I put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. That's why we know him as Doubting Thomas, which is kind of an unfair name. But but he, he made that declaration. But eight days later, John tells us Jesus appeared again in the middle of a locked room with the doors and windows closed. He just shows up, but this time Thomas is with them and Thomas is present and says to him, because he knew what Thomas had said, even though he wasn't physically there, he speaks to Thomas. He says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but but believing. And Thomas, who is overwhelmed by the sight of the risen Lord, overwhelmed by his knowledge of what he thought, he had said in secret declares and this is the final kind of revelation of John's gospel my Lord and my God Jesus's appearance is enough to convince even doubting Thomas that Jesus really is who he said he is that Jesus really is the Messiah sent from God that he really is God manifested in the flesh that he is none other than Yahweh come to see save us it's enough that one moment's enough to quell thomas's doubts and reignite his faith faith that tradition tells us leads thomas to take the gospel all the way to india spreading churches as he goes one of the great missionaries of the early church but that moment isn't enough for peter Peter, who'd been the Lord's most ardent supporter. Peter, who'd been the first one to recognize that Jesus was Messiah. Peter, who was the one who promised to follow him, even when all others forsook him, even unto death. I will never deny you. I will follow you wherever you go. Peter, the one who had pulled out his sword and lopped off Malchus's ear to prevent Jesus' arrest. It was this Peter who stood around a fire outside the high priest's home and before the cock crowed twice, he denied three times that he even knew who Jesus was. 
And Peter cannot forgive himself for this act of betrayal. He cannot, he's the one who was always committed to Jesus. He was part of that inner circle. And yet he, like a craven, fear, fearful person, just denies Jesus outright. So at the beginning of John 21, Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's not that Peter's bored. It's not that he's just trying to fill the hours. It's not just that he's looking for something to do. I think right here in that moment, Peter is giving up on being Jesus' disciple. He's giving up on his dreams of following the Messiah. He's going back to his life as it was before he encountered the master because there's nothing left for him here. He's denied the Lord. He, how, how could Jesus ever forgive him? How could Jesus ever accept him back? He's crossed that line and, and there's no going back. So you know what? I'm just going to give up. I, I know I loved him and I know I want but God, that's it. I'm just going to go fishing. Going fishing. Then to add insult to injury, Peter goes fishing and he catches nothing. Now, for a person like me, who is about as opposite of an outdoorsman as you can get, the idea of going fishing and catching nothing sounds about right. That's a, that's a typical, my, the highlight of my fishing career happened, I think, when I was 10 years old. I went fishing with my grandpa, and I caught a one, I caught a one pound black bass. That is, I peaked right there. That's it. That's, that's all I got. That's a typical day of fishing for me, catching nothing. But you got to remember, Peter had been a professional fisherman. Probably Peter's father and grandfather. Or fishermen. This is probably the family business. He's probably uh, learned skills from other members of his family. This was how he had made his living when Jesus found him. Mark relates the story. He says Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon, Peter, and, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they immediately dropped their nets, it says and they followed him but they were fishermen so for Peter to go fishing and to catch nothing is, is unthinkable he, he's just given up on being one of Jesus's disciples he's just walked away from being part of the inner circle and, 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 and now he's just left in guilt and shame and now he discovers I can't even fish anymore I can't imagine Peter's feelings of despair I can't imagine as the morning sun cracks the eastern horizon. Can't imagine how much of an utter failure he felt like as he rode back toward shore that morning. A fisherman who can't cast fish. A disciple who can't be faithful to his master. What is he supposed to do now? But then catch sight of Jesus standing on the shore and he just tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat just as he had done much earlier when he had first getting to know 
Jesus, getting to know him. So look at, for example, t- check out Luke 5. Suddenly there's a huge catch of fish. Suddenly there's so many, the net begins to break. But, but it's more than just catching fish to Peter. It's more than just, just a, a successful fishing trip. The point here was not just to convince Peter that he still got what it takes to be a good fisherman. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is literally recreating the conditions of Peter's initial calling. And as the rest of the story will bear out, Jesus came to the beach that day. He came to the shore that day to fully restore Peter to his place in the inner circle, to bring him back to his role as leader of the twelve. He's come to renew Peter's heart. He's come to restore his bro- the broken relationship. He's come to help Peter get rid of the shame and the guilt and the despair. And I'm talking to somebody right now who feels like you've walked out for the last time on what God has for you, who feels like you've crossed a line and, and there's no going back now. And I might as well just pack it in. But there's Jesus. I want you to see Jesus standing on the shore with a little breakfast cooked for you. What? Wanting to have a discussion with you. Wanting to have an encounter with you. Because there's still room for you. There's still forgiveness. There's still reconciliation and hope. But before Jesus can do any of that for Peter. He has to remind Peter of one important fact. And that is that Incredibles can't. Be average. The reason Peter did not catch any fish that night is because he was no longer just a fisherman. The night that had been his life before he had encountered Jesus. But since he had encountered Jesus, he was only after that to be a fisher of men. His life had been forever altered. His destiny had been forever changed because the call of Jesus had come on his life, because Jesus had touched him, because Jesus had reached out to him. You see, what Peter learned that day is once you've encountered Jesus, you can't go back to the life you've lived before. It'll never again be business as usual. You'll never be able to return to the things that you used to do. You will never be able to revive previous plans and dreams. The hand of God has touched you, and you will never be the same. Incredibles can't be average. Elisha, this is what Elisha recognizes when Elijah walks by and he drops the mantle on his shoulders. I want you to notice Elisha is given no prior warning. Elijah does not send a messenger ahead to tell Elisha that he's coming. He doesn't do, say anything to him. He, there's no warning. All of a sudden, 
Elisha, who's just a good farmer, out there plowing his fields, trying to make sure those furrows stay straight, trying to make sure that the oxen walk in, in sync with one another. Oh, he's focused on his farming. But all of a sudden, here comes that prophet Elijah with that little fire in his eyes and, 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 and that, that look about him, that glow from the fire on the mountain that he had just experienced. He comes walking by and he taught, he drops that mantle on Elisha's shoulders. He just, just for a moment, I don't know how he did it. I imagine it was a pretty like smooth single motion. He just whips that mantle off his shoulders and just throws it around Elisha's shoulders. But once that mantle touched Elisha, listen to what he did. It says he turned back and he took a yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them and he boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment. And he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he rose and he followed Elijah. And he became his servant. I, when that mantle fell, when that mantle touched Elijah, Elisha, when, when he felt the power of God that rested on the prophet, just touch him so briefly, all of a sudden he, does, he decided, you know what? This is, this is the end of things. So he burns his plow. And he burns the, the traces that control the oxen. Because Elisha is saying, I may not know where I'm headed next. I may not know what's going to happen down the road. But I know what I'm never going back to. I may not. I will never be a farmer again. Because the power of God has touched my life. The power of God rests on me. Whatever else may come, I'm going to burn this plow. Whatever else may come, I'm not coming back to this field ever again because the mantle has touched me. I'm preaching today to those who are still on the fence. I'm preaching to those today who are quote-unquote keeping their options open. I'm preaching to those who came to Urshan College at the urging of your pastor or your parents to try it out for one year or so. I'm talking to those of you who put off accepting full ride scholarships to a state university that's much nearer home. And, or I'm talking to those of you who are halfway through a degree at another school and, and you decided to come to Urshan College. That's who I'm talking to this morning because somewhere in the back of your mind there's a voice telling you Things don't work out at Urshan. If it proves to be too difficult, if it turns out to not be what you expected, if you didn't know Runk was going to make you read the entire Old Testament, no tea lit, right? If you didn't know that Brother Norris was going to make you memorize 60 verses in IPT, you didn't know it was going to be this hard. You didn't know it was going to turn out like this. There's a voice in the back of your head that says you can always go back to what you used to do. You can always go back and finish that degree. You can always go back and get that scholarship. You can always go home and work in your daddy's business. I'm here to tell you today, don't listen to that voice. That voice is a liar. That voice is untrue. Once you've been touched by the power of God, once you've heard his calling, once your heart has been stirred with his his burden once you've caught sight of his vision there is no going back to an average life 
Incredibles cannot be average. You were made. You were made to be incredible. And you will fail if you try to be average. When I was in college, I had a young man in our class. We'll call him Jim. It's not his real name. Still some folk around who might know him if I gave his real name. Jim was really young. He, I think he was 16, actually 16 years old when he came to college. He actually, I think, turned 17 the first month we were there. Came in 98. As you know, wheels were square. Dead Sea was still sick back in the days. Fire had just been discovered way back in the day. But Jim, 16-year-old Jim, is probably the most talented person in our entire class. We had some pretty talented guys, but I think Jim was the most talented one. He could sing. He could play any instrument by ear. He could literally sit down with an instrument and in a matter of a few minutes, maybe an hour, hour two, he could play it. It was like disgusting. I mean, you know, it just was crazy. He was, he was already a gifted preacher, communicator. He was a friendly guy. He was super nice. Good looking dude. He had a really sincere heart for God. Jim was a great guy. Long about our sophomore, junior year, Jim started to date a young apostolic girl from a, a, a church in Missouri. And she was a nice young lady. I don't have anything negative to say about her on you, okay? Just, not, I'm not, that's not a criticism of her. Her family, her family was, I know, I, as I recall, her family was a pillar in their local church. It was really, whatever church it was, it, they were they were a, they were an upstanding family. Her dad, uh, and I think I, I don't have the details. I'm fuzzy on this part. I think, but but I think her dad was pretty well to do. I don't. He wasn't probably wealthy, but let's just say he wasn't poor. Okay, he wasn't poor. Um, Jim fell in love with her. They got engaged. Kind of along with this, about this same time, ministry oper opportunity opened up for Jim at his fiance's church. So he decided to leave school without graduating, without finishing his degree. And this happened, I think, I want to say this might have happened in, this, in our last year, or very close to it, maybe the junior year, right before his last year. He decided to leave to go for this opportunity. Problem of it is, as soon as he left, and really through no fault of anybody's, the, the ministry opportunity just kind of dried up. It just... The position had been offered, but by the time he got to the church, they had things had changed, uh, things had shifted, and there really wasn't a paid position there anymore, and all sorts of stuff. And again, not anybody's fault, but but Jim kind of I, I could you know got hurt by that. And I understood. I you know we we kind of understood, felt bad about that. And then, kind of on top of that, you know, like I said, his wife grew up pretty comfortable. I threw this in as an aside on Tuesday. Just guys, just just watch how you're. If, if you're serious about marrying a young lady, watch how your 
potential future father-in-law treats his daughters, okay? Because they're going to have those kinds of expectations, you know? So you need, to, you need to be aware of that. You need to have those discussions because guess what? It took, you know, and young ladies, can I just say this to you? Do you realize, you know, I know what your daddy can pay for you, but your daddy has worked for 30 years. The guy you're marrying has worked for three, okay? So he's got a little bit of room to grow, okay? So you're going to have to have those conversations. That's the number one enemy of a lasting marriage is unrealistic and unmet expectations, okay? Well, free marriage advice. That's all you're going to get from me today. But, but she, had, she had these expectations of a comfortable life. And, and so Jim, to, because ministry had dried, you know, he didn't have a ministry opportunity really. He just started to pour himself into a secular job. I think he sold insurance, which is kind of hilarious because that has not, it's not trying to tie into the incredible story at the beginning. I really didn't do that. But, but he began to work and he began to do very well. He actually, I think he still is and he's doing a good job. He's got a good business. Slowly, Jim drifted out of church. Several years after we graduated, a classmate of ours got married at that church, married another girl in that church. And I was asked to be one of his groomsmen. In fact, all of the groomsmen were from our class. And Jim was asked to sing. So this wedding became something of a like five-year class reunion for us. It's a great time. We had a lot of time telling memories. And all of us were in ministry at different places. We were scattered around the country. Some of us were youth pastors. Some of us were assistant pastors. I was still stuck here. <laughs> like I've been ever since. All of us, except for Jim. He was busy working on his business. And what I so remember so vividly, watching him through that weekend, not in ministry, only nominally in church, but probably making more money than any three of us put together. All I could see in his eyes was misery. Maybe swapping stories about it how our churches were doing and what was going on with our ministerial careers. And he would stand there with us, completely silent, listening with what I can only describe as longing in his eyes. It was like, it, and, and, and he would be, we'd been great friends. He was, like I said, he was a friendly guy. We all liked him. He was popular. He was a good guy. But it was like there was an invisible wall or a ditch between us. Like, like, like there was, like, he was, he was just standing behind a glass partition looking over into our lives because there was, it just was obvious that he had knew, he knew he had given up a part of himself just to make money, just to have a nice house, just to build a big business, just to have a nice car. He had surrendered something that he shouldn't have let go of. I think my friend Jim realized all too late that you think you'll be able to find happiness out there if things don't work out here. You think, oh, if this ministry thing doesn't pan out, 
If the vision God has given me doesn't come to fruition, I, I can always go do something else. I can always use my talents and my abilities to accomplish something else. But I'm here to tell you today, that's all smoke and mirrors. There is nothing out there for you. There are so many days. I went, I went to get coffee Tuesday morning, and, and Grace asked me. Grace was working the, the coffee bar downstairs, and I was, she was asking me how things are going. And I need to send her a check for the therapy session. I was like, I was just like, oh, I just, I, it's fun. I, I started talking about all the meetings I have. I hate meetings. Can I just tell you, meetings are the bane of my existence because the meetings I all have are the meetings with all the problems. That I never get an easy meeting. It's never an easy question. It's always the really hard questions. And then I have to figure out what to do. And it just wears on me and it tires me out. And there are so many days, I tell you, where I've wondered, maybe I should just go sell suits. They're my skills, maybe I should go work at another university. Maybe I, should, maybe I should try to find something else I can do with my talents. But there's always in the back of my mind, there's always something. I see Jim's eyes. I see the emptiness there. I see the loss and the mourning of what should have been. And I know that no matter how hard it gets here, no matter how worn out I may feel, no matter how difficult the meetings may be, I cannot step away from the calling of God because incredibles can't be average. Let's stand together. Incredibles cannot be average. God's hand has touched you. Something irrevocable has happened in the spirit. Something has come over you that you cannot escape. And, you, and there is no amount of money in the world. There is not a car fast enough. There is not a house big enough. There is not a job important enough. There is not a title prestigious enough to take the place of what God has put into your life. You can't be average. You can't live a normal life. You can't go back to what you used to be. Because God's hand is on you. Oh, God's hand is on you. I said God's hand is on you. The hand of the Lord. Oh, right now, that mantle is falling. God's going to touch you today. God's going to touch you today. And you won't ever be able to go back. Oh, let the mantle brush you. Let the presence of God just, just touch you today.
that's it, that's it, that's it. Come on. Come on. God is doing something irrevocable today. God is setting you on a path and in a direction that will shape your destiny. You're not going to be average. You're not going to be normal. You're going to be incredible. Incredible.